you know, the COVID pandemic has impacted our health and the health of our communities in ways that we have never imagined. I don't think we could have imagined because we've never been in this situation before. It's challenged us both in the medical education world as well as the healthcare professions and in public health. We must give patients accurate information, but we also have to give our healthcare professionals accurate information. And if everybody wants to remain healthy and we want to continue to train future physicians, we need to have a true understanding of what's actually out there. The situation that we find ourselves facing right now the plague hit us, so I'm not happy about that. Okay. If you're sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others. Positive, neutral, immune response. Coronavirus. For monoclonal antibody cocktail, we see the etiology. We want to end this outbreak. We've got to realize that we are part of the process. Hi, I'm Darren D'Agostino, Executive Dean at Kansas City University, and we are glad you could join us for our very first podcast, Staying Well Informed. This podcast is going to help us uncover and discover those elements related to the pandemic, COVID-19, and the things that are around us in healthcare. So whether you're studying to become a healthcare professional or really just anybody who wants better understanding of the coronavirus for yourself and for your family so that you can set goals and actually be safe. We're here to provide unbiased information and quite frankly, the straight science. So joining me now is Elizabeth Alex. Hi, Elizabeth, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Great Elizabeth to be here. A, well, yeah, I'm glad you're, uh, glad you're joining us today and I know uh, for all future podcasts. We're going to have uh, a lot of information going between us here. So uh, Elizabeth is a former journalist, and she's now a member of the KCU communications team, and she's here to welcome us. Right. And we got a lot of questions to uh, go over, I guess. A lot of things people are asking about out there. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to start just talking away, shooting away with our questions. Um, I think starting right now for maybe for everybody, we have been bombarded with these terms. Uh, there are a lot of them being thrown around and we don't always know what they mean. So I thought I would just start by asking you about some of these things like RT, r not prevalence, contact tracing, hospitalization rates. Um, what do those things mean and, and are they still relevant six months in to tracking this virus? This is a great question. This is something that has been on my mind for a while. Um, and even reading the literature, I see uh, challenges to each of the definitions to these uh, statistics that are being used. It's probably the most important thing for us to say right now is that these are tools that the public health community uses in order to define and help predict what to do during outbreaks epidemics, pandemics. What we have now is a uh, very critical situation around the world. And what we don't have is uh, a lot of the basic information because it's continually changing. So let's start with the one called prevalence. So prevalence really is our understanding of how much of this virus is actually living out in the community. And that becomes the foundation for many of the calculations that we have to make to understand how fast the virus is spreading, in what communities it's spreading into, 
And the prevalence is going to be different in different populations. So for instance, New York had a much higher prevalence than the middle states in the United States early on in this pandemic. But as they began to mitigate, as they began to quarantine, isolate, and really put measures in place to decrease the spread, New York's prevalence actually began to change. And we're starting to see that uh, those changes in the opposite direction in the middle states, particularly here in Missouri right now, we're actually growing uh, our incident rate, which we can talk about in a few minutes. But that also means that the prevalence is probably going up at this point. Now, is that going to change? Well, I think it will as soon as we get better handle on how the spread and how to mitigate and how we can take control over everything before vaccines show up. So prevalence is an important number to understand what that foundation is and how much of the virus is out there. That one leads into the other statistic that you talked about, and that was the RT. And you also mentioned a term called r naught. So those are just slightly different elements. Um, but basically what they talk about uh, is the amount, the number of people that can get infected from an infected person. So if one person has uh, the coronavirus, the RT will tell us how many people that one person will spread it to. So obviously, the higher the number, the worse it is. So if we take something like measles, measles, depending again on the population we were looking at, had an RT of 1 to 15. And then actually, in some places, it was as high as one person could spread it to 27 people. It's probably one of the most infectious uh, agents that we've ever had. And thankfully, we've been able to create vaccines to shut it down. So with the coronavirus, the RT value is being calculated in different places and being watched as a marker of infectivity. So in other words, if you're above one, if one person gets the disease and they only give it to one person, that's kind of a neutral infection rate. That means that we can begin to slow down the spread and we can actually begin to take control of it. And the lower that number, so an RT of 0.9 or 0.95 means we're not spreading it to a lot of people. In fact, that's an indication that the virus may burn out. So this number, however, is completely connected to contact tracing, which is the other thing that you brought up. Right. Contact tracing means as soon as somebody's infected, we go and figure out where that infection came from, how they got it, who, who are all the people that that person who is infected might have given it to. And that means we have to have a large number of people available to be able to make the phone calls and visit the houses of all the people that have been infected. Right. I can tell you in the United States right now, this is a very significant deficit across the entire nation. Right. And it's one of the challenges that we have because contact tracing is so critical for everything that we're doing. In non-infection pandemic epidemic times, we can, we can actually have for every, um, um, 100,000 people in a community, about 10 contact tracers. Now, in reality, we need more 
when the infection rates go up. With COVID, it's estimated we need between 30 and 40 per 100,000 because the rates are so high. And in New York, when it was really, really growing and on the West Coast, when it was really out there, you could be one in 50. Uh, You could be up to 50 contact tracers for every 100,000 people. So these are large numbers of contact tracers across the country that are needed and that are working. And they are doing a great job, but they're also overworked. And that's pretty much in every state. I can tell you in Missouri, we just don't have enough at this point. Um, More being hired around the state to help out with this. Uh, But until we have enough people that can tell us exactly who is infected and how many have been out there who are infected and who they might have given it to, the RT value becomes non-accurate. And so we have to be cautious when we're reading these these, uh, numbers in the literature. The last thing you had mentioned, Elizabeth, was hospitalization rates. And what's important here is that this is actually a very good marker, particularly for this virus when it gets out of control. This is a good marker because once you're in the hospital and you have to be pretty sick to get in the hospital, it tells us, it gives us some good information about the aggressiveness of the virus. Um, It also gives us some, some demographic information. For instance, we're not seeing a lot of kids that are going into hospitals. They're not, they're just not getting that sick, but we do know they're getting infected because we know they're positive, they're testing positive, but they're just not sick enough to get into the hospital. The people who are getting into the hospital tend to be a little bit older, generally above 50, but we are definitely without question seeing people in their 20s go into the hospital. And we can also look at the number of people that are dying in the hospital with this. And as much as we don't like talking about that, What I can say is that our knowledge of this disease has gotten much better and that the physicians who are taking care of people with uh, full-blown COVID are um, much more successful than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. The other thing I can tell you is you don't want to have this disease because if you are getting sick from it, there are lasting effects that are now being identified that can last months. And some people are estimating longer than a few months. Now, Again, it's too early in the um, disease to truly understand how long the after effects and the recovery from uh, this virus will take, but it is something that we're watching. So we want to be careful with this. All right. Great information. Catching everyone with the idea that you don't want to get this is, you know, that that makes me, you sit up and take notice. Um, We do have, it does seem like the most hopeful word we have right now is vaccine. How close are we? to actually having a vaccine and how will the process of getting people vaccinated actually unfold? Yeah, this is also one of the things that we have to make sure we get right. Right now, there are a number of viable candidates uh, that are actually in their phase three trials. And around the world, there are are, um, six that look like they're going to eventually turn out to become uh, the ones that we're using. Uh, There is a lot of hope that we're going to have an emergency use authorization for highly vulnerable populations by mid to end October. And um, if that is true, uh, we should talk about that right now because an emergency use authorization is not something that is figured out by governments or by physicians. The emergency use would actually be after data is collected by the company that's producing the vaccine. 
and then they have to apply to the FDA, and that application then gets reviewed based on standards and safety data. Uh, and then, if granted, will be granted for the specific thing that is being requested for the emergency use. So what we think is going to happen, and in fact, we are planning right now on September 22nd, 2020, we are planning for an emergency use authorization for at least one of those vaccines by the end of October and potentially the beginning of November. Now, why is that happening? Because it's needed. It's also happening because the phase three trials are uh, pretty much demonstrating safety. Now, you've probably been reading in the news recently about one of the viruses causing a spinal cord injury in an individual. Right. And that was, uh, that was actually one of the trials that's going on in Europe. It's the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And when you really look at this data, okay, this is one person out of almost 15,000 that have been recruited for that trial. Now, there are a number of other, uh, there was a smaller cohort that this person came out of, but we're actually not seeing this occur across the board. Now, one is enough for the data safety board to actually pull the trigger and put a pause on the study. And that in fact is what happened. So before they enroll anybody else, they have to look at this data and make sure that that spinal cord injury was not specifically due to the virus, but rather something that could have happened in normal people. Now, understanding what that problem is, I do know that it can happen in real life without a virus, but there are other vaccines uh, that have contributed to these problems in the past. So we have to take it seriously. We haven't seen this from the other vaccine makers at this point. There are two vaccines that are currently functioning, uh, one in China and one in Russia right now. We're not getting a lot of data on them, so we can't talk about how specifically safe they are or other elements of protection. That data is not being released from those countries. And most of us who uh, understand how vaccines are made are very wary of the fact that they were released so early in their uh, production time. What I can tell you here in the United States is that the FDA, the CDC, and all of the companies um, are on the same page, and that is we are not going to release a vaccine until the safety information suggests it's going to be safe. Now, one of the things that has happened with this, which we have to take uh, notice of, is the, the production of these vaccines has occurred in a way that it's never happened before. And there has been some challenge in the media, and especially the social media, regarding safety because it's happening so fast. This is an, this is an important point that we should talk about because what's happened is a change in the process, not the same process just running faster. If we were producing vaccines the same way, but doing it faster, there would be more opportunity for mistakes. What has happened is the process has changed. And in fact, the phasing is occurring in parallel. So in other words, we're not finishing one phase and moving into another, finishing a phase, the next phase and moving into the following phase and just speeding that up. Because if we did that, we would be on the same timeline as other vaccines, which might be three to 10 years, depending oh, on how they are produced. Right? Mm -hmm. That's how long it takes to produce one using that process. What's happened now is a different way of looking at the information. 
and running the phase trials in parallel. And each one of those phase trials has different sets of information that they look at. And then that information is then turned into the report for safety and efficacy and all the other pieces. That is getting reviewed by independent safety boards and data management boards. And in fact, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine that came out, it was their data safety board that identified a challenge. And they're the ones that are going to look at, evaluate the information, and make sure that it is safe to restart. Well, that's reassuring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that it makes, it gives me comfort knowing that this is what's happening. So to get to um, the final answer here is those vaccines likely will be available for an emergency use authorization. The emergency use authorization, I believe, that is going to be asked for initially is for vulnerable populations. The second most focused group is going to be healthcare professionals and first responders, likely those that have vulnerable conditions as well, but they're on our front line and we have to protect them because they are the ones who are taking care of us if we get sick. And then after that, I believe it's going to move into uh, the general population. Uh, All of this has to be based on safety. That's good to know. Well, here's a question um, about herd immunity. Do you get herd immunity from the whole community being vaccinated, or do you get herd immunity from the whole community getting the virus? Another great question. So um, herd immunity is a term that's used when enough people in your community have uh, immunity to an infectious organism. And therefore, if that organism makes it into the community, there just aren't enough people that will get sick. So the the virus or the bacteria or whatever it is actually dies off. And so herd immunity for this COVID vaccine, um, for the COVID infection, Uh, is likely not going to happen until we have a vaccine or enough people are infected and they develop immunity to it. Now, there's some caveats here. Part of the problem with this coronavirus is that it likely is not going to give us lasting immunity for years and years and years. It's more than likely only going to give us Um, six months to a year's worth of immunity, which means it'll be just like getting a flu shot. So each year we'll likely have to take a shot that will give us immunity for the season that that coronavirus might come around. Now, in the beginning of the pandemic, we were very hopeful it was this virus was going to have seasonality and be able to uh, kind of quiet down and not infect people once we got to the winter months, uh, excuse me, the summer months. And it turned out that did not happen. I personally believe part of that is because we were not doing enough due diligence as individuals in the United States to mitigate it. But I also think it's because this virus is acting like two of its cousins in the coronavirus family, and they are not affected by seasonality. So this directly affects herd immunity because now in order for herd immunity to occur, we're going to have to have enough people that can develop immunity at the same time. And that likely is only going to happen with vaccinations. Uh, 
And we'll, we'll have to get the population to actually take them. I know you've been frustrated about the rate of flu shots, but. Yeah, well, that'll be a big one because, you know, a rough rule of thumb is about 50% of the people aren't going to take a vaccine. Um, and depending on the season, it's going to go up. I think a very um, a poor choice this year is going to be to not take the flu vaccine. And the reason that is, is because, you know, you take the flu vaccine, you are protected, but not completely. The interesting thing is, is, you know, some people argue, why would I take the vaccine if, I'm, if I can still get the flu? Well, that's because the disease or the illness that occurs after you're infected is sharply mitigated. So that means that it's protecting you from a very bad outcome, including death. And, uh, you know, a good flu season and I hate using these terms, but a good flu season is only about 5,000 people die. And isn't that not a great way to say it? That's sobering. It is. But when you think about it, within the last two years, we've had tens of thousands of people die from flu, including last year, about 36,000 people died from flu. The two years before that, it was almost 50,000. Now, why is that? Number one, many people don't take the shot. And number two, not enough people within individual communities had it, so we couldn't generate the herd immunity to slow the spread. So wow. there are a number of different reasons why this is happening. The last one is most people say, well, the, you know, the scientists can't get it right and they can't put the right uh, strains in there. It's not 100% accurate. What happens is, is there are predictions based on modeling. And those predictions are usually pretty good, but sometimes are off. And if they're off by a certain percentage, then what happens is, is it doesn't exert enough immunity to prevent the infection, but it does exert enough immunity for a response in case you're infected so that you can fight it better. So it's always a good idea to take it. Now, I'll put in one more plug right now. There are many different ways you can take this vaccine. So for the flu vaccine, you can, uh, you can take it by shot. There are actually uh, jet injectors when they do mass uh, vaccinations, particularly in the military. There's even a nasal inhaled uh, version of it. But that one, we're not really recommending unless you, you have to talk with your healthcare provider. Uh, that one is not a good one for certain people. So if you have an immune deficiency or if you're on medications, that one you really don't want to get. Um, the shot itself is very easy. It works well and you can't get the flu from it. So it's going to be important to get it. Our COVID vaccines are all going to be shots. And right now it looks like all the viable candidates are going to be two shots, probably spread by one month. So you'd have to get a shot and then a booster about a month later, and that would give you your immunity. After it's out there, likely the formula is going to change a little bit so that you'll probably only need one shot. But that's time will tell, and the scientists are figuring that out. Okay. Let's talk just a little bit about masks and social distancing. I know we've talked about it so much during this whole pandemic, but you know, at the beginning of the virus, you know, a lot of the pandemic, most medical people said we didn't really need to wear masks. Now it's it's our big protection. And I think people would like to hear from you on, you know, how did that change? And, you know, a lot of people are confused. Now they're just refusing to wear them because they think it's part of their freedom. How do you react to all of that? Put together with the situation we're in now. Yeah, so you know this is this is an indication of how fast the information 
about this virus is coming in. Um, so let's talk about the masking and the, first the recommendations that it's probably not going to make much of a difference to now we absolutely know it's critically important. Mm -hmm. Um, so this has to do with the information that was available when the virus was first identified. And based on the, um, the, based on the fact that it is a respiratory virus and based on the fact that it, is, it has cousins that live in our community, there are actually four strains of the coronavirus that are ever prevalent. We, uh, two of them have seasonality and they tend to go away in the summer. Um, and two of them actually have no seasonality. And so, in fact, when you have a um, cold or a flu, chances are, it, not a flu, but if you have a cold and it's not flu, it's going to be one of the coronaviruses or the rhinoviruses. And so we have a number of those strains that have seasonality or don't have seasonality. Well, this new one, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, had, has enough... Um, genetic overlap with the other viruses that we actually believed that it was going to act a bit more like a droplet and really meant that social distancing doesn't mean we can't talk to people after six feet. Right. But uh, one of the things that we want to make sure in those droplet precautions is that you're not in the way of the droplets. And even though there's plenty of evidence out there that says a droplet can travel more than six feet, the chances of it traveling more than six feet are low. And so that became the biggest mitigation strategy. And unless you had the illness in the beginning, it really wasn't recommended that you wear a mask. What happened after that is the studies, the scientists really worked very hard and figured out that there is a major aerosol component to this. And what's, what's different about the SARS-CoV-2 virus compared to the SARS-CoV virus, so the original SARS infection, is that that infection required you to kind of get really sick, and you had to have a lot of the virus in your lung before you spread it to anybody. This one, you don't have to be sick. It's a much more efficient uh -huh. virus to infect, mm. and therefore, you don't have to be sick to spread it to people. And so from there, we started finding out that it lives very well in aerosols and floats through the air. There are even uh, masks that break up those larger droplets and turn them into small and medium-sized droplets so they float on air better and, in fact, can help infect people. So those are things like bandanas, single-ply fa certain fabrics, those gaiters that gators. people wear around. Yeah, the synthetic fabrics are really, they act like sieves and when the fluids move through them, it breaks them up. So to get back to the question, the masks in the beginning, we honestly thought it was going to be a bit more like the flu and the other viruses where those masks weren't gonna have as much of an effect. Now we already know that if you're infected or you think you're infected, we put masks on you immediately. We also know that masks in the beginning of this pandemic were being, as people were buying them, they were taking away the supply from the hospital. Right. If the hospital didn't have it, that meant the doctors, the nurses, the first responders, the respiratory therapists, even the visitors couldn't get a mask and weren't able to move into the hospital or, or take care of patients. And so there were a number of different circumstances that challenged this. But once we discovered that the most efficient 
transmission is through aerosols, there's no doubt that masks are critical and the right kind of mask. So really what our, our medical community has been sort of watching this unfold in real time. And what we knew six months ago was valid, but we, you know, things have changed in the last six months is what I'm kind of hearing from you. So um, <clears throat> the knowledge has changed and that knowledge informs the physicians and the public health officials and all the people who are studying this. So the science is ever growing and how we understand that this virus is infecting people and whether or not certain populations can tolerate it better than others is, is ever changing. And what's different now is that the media is so focused on it. Information gets out so quickly that it actually doesn't have time to be digested. And oftentimes, and I've seen this, this is why I spend time you know, working with the media and talking with um, everybody about what the actual science is because it's not being digested and used, in some cases, even erroneously reported because the information hasn't worked itself through the scientific community. And so it's very important that we take some of this with a grain of salt until we have validated all of the information. But, you know, getting to what you were really talking about and where it becomes an issue with the masks, those issues actually put off a lot of the public. And they believe that nobody knows what's really going on. And so they end up pushing back and that creates more problems and more spread. It's a very real problem and it's something that we see happen in many communities, generally outside of the United States because the United States has an amazing health care system, albeit expensive and albeit difficult to access sometimes. We still have a great system that we can function, uh, that functions well to keep us protected. Our public health system, although not intimately connected with the rest of the healthcare system, is an incredible arm of everything that's going on as well. And in fact, at Kansas City University, we are in the process of developing deeper and stronger relationships. So our medical students are working directly with and understand how public health is critical to what they will be doing in the future. So I think these are important things to talk about. And, um, and I appreciate that question because it, it really touches on a number of different challenges that we have with uh, the coronavirus in the um, first six months of this pandemic. Well, I think it makes your being willing to talk and having forums like this that much more important so that people are getting unbiased information. And I, I thank you for, for doing that and for the university and for the community as well. No, it's um, a pleasure. So the last thing really I had to ask you about today is for you to, to describe Kansas City University's campus protocols. Uh, they are more strict than uh, most businesses, and, and they're stricter than many college campuses as well. They are. And uh, we have an incredible group of people that are working on developing these. Um, so why did KCU for both of our campuses put in these uh, rigid guidelines? In Kansas City and Joplin, just to be. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we have campuses, for those of you that don't know us uh, as well, and we hope that these podcasts give you a, a deeper mm -hmm. understanding of the great stuff we're doing here. Uh, we have two campuses where our medical students uh, attend, and uh, one is in Kansas City and one is in Joplin. And interestingly, here in Missouri, 
we are actually uh, in those two areas that have high rates of infectivity. And in fact, that is one of the reasons why we became so um, specifically focused on mitigating and putting controls in place so that our students don't get sick. For most institutions of higher learning, especially at the college level, we are seeing um, schools open and then parties happen and then schools closing or quarantining occurring and it's interrupting the education cycle of those individuals. Now in medical school, it's a little bit different. So we've been very fortunate in that most of our students understand that putting in a little bit of time now, a bit more of the discipline to prevent spreading the infection is going to help. Now the university has put some checks and balances in as well. We tested every one of our students and the faculty that were going to be on campus before we started. And in fact, we found out we had about a 1.1 infectivity rate or positivity rate, uh, which is very good. Um, it yeah. looks like if you look around the country, we're probably going to be um, finding out that in the United States, the prevalence is going to be about 1%. Uh, in some of the communities that have adequate testing, we're seeing that number pretty much show up. It'll probably be plus or minus that, maybe a little bit more than 1%, but we're close to it. We're actually doing some uh, pool testing, which is going to be continuation of the screening so that we can identify if we have populations or if we have some letdown of our guard. But what I can tell you is our screening tools are not screening our students positive, even though these are not tests that are being done for the COVID virus, but rather the screening using questions to identify risk our students are generally staying out of risk's way, and that's been pretty good. So in order helpful. to get on campus, I'm sorry? Helpful, very helpful. Yeah, very helpful. And our students have been doing a great job with that. Our faculty have been doing a great job with that. But there's still some challenges. We still have to make sure that we're keeping everything clean, because even though aerosols may be the best way to spread it, droplets can do it too. So we have cleaning protocols. We've set up our students in smaller cohorts so that no one population within the campus could get sick and close everything down. We have an amazing contact tracing team through our SCORE 1 team who get in touch with everybody that might screen positive on the written screening or test positive either through the work we're doing or outside of our screening protocols, our testing protocols. And they're following and helping our students on a daily basis, including follow-up with physicians, and making sure that laboratories are done when needed. And thankfully, we haven't had anybody get sick enough to require hospitalization. So we're doing pretty well from that perspective. We have only opened up for those things in medical school that are absolutely critical, critical to learn face-to-face. -face. And those things that aren't, uh, that don't require a face-to-face -face learning environment, we've actually put on hold and we've gone to remote teaching using live and asynchronous uh, education. So as much as it's not the normal, we've been able to continually give the education at what I believe at least the same quality and in some cases maybe better because of the resources we've had to put in place in order for the students to stay on track. Our third and fourth years where we're doing clinical rotations, we're actually issuing PPE to everybody. 
And Elizabeth, it's probably a good time for me to even talk about the PPE. We've issued PPE on campus for our first and second year students. And so they can't be on campus unless they have a face mask on. And we are mandating either an N95 or a KN95 mask and goggles or a face shield so that we can prevent droplets and aerosols from, from infecting our students. In the third and fourth year, we're issuing the same out to our students who are on hospital rotations. And so the reason we're doing that is because we don't want to pull from the hospitals and from the individual clinics their supply of PPE so that they can give it to their patients and to their healthcare professionals. So we don't want to be a burden on those sites. Right. We've issued and we are following up and even have created a portal for requests from students anywhere they're rotating in the country to ask for PPE and we will ship it out to them. So all of these, um, all of these mitigation strategies seem to be working for us and we're going to continue to be vigilant. Um, and when the time is right and we're able to, we'll open up the campus and uh, have more face-to-face -face activities occurring. But until then, we're going to err on the side of safety and making sure nobody gets sick from this. Well, that might be a good model for some other places to follow too, if, if, if we don't get a handle on this um, pretty soon. So Agreed. thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for all the great information uh, in this podcast so far, our inaugural podcast. Uh, I would also like to add that you appear on Fox 4 News in Kansas City on Tuesday and Thursday mornings live around 8.15 Central Time in the morning to answer questions about COVID from viewers there. And we do want to urge our listeners to check that out on television or streaming. Great. Thanks. Well, thanks again for helping put this together. And for everybody out there, thank you for joining us and uh, we hope to see you soon. Staying Well Informed is a Kate's UCAS original from Kansas City University. Learn more online at kansascity.edu.